I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Can urban tech solve our greatest urban challenges? Sean Abramson thinks so. He is co-founder of Urban Us, a public benefit corporation based in Miami that supports companies solving urban challenges. Sean is an investor in a number of successful startups and has helped run global challenges like Starbucks Beta Cup, Life Edited, and the $300 house. Sean, your premise at Urban Us is pretty simple. Startups can solve our greatest urban challenges, and your business is helping them succeed. Let's start with the first part of the proposition. What are some of the urban challenges that startups are trying to tackle? We see a very wide range, uh, but a lot of them are rooted in uh, climate change, actually. Um, And so we think the reason for that is uh, increasingly people understand that when we talk about climate change, we're really talking about cities, since cities are about 80% uh, of the CO2 footprint, a little less in terms of energy use. And so it's, it's very common to see startups that are working directly on demand-side energy problems. So how do we reduce or how do we make more efficient buildings? Uh, or more broadly, how do you make the built environment more efficient. So that sort of, I would say, is, is one end. And then there's a universe that is, are sort of indirectly related. So um, one very big area is mobility. I think driven by car sharing and ride sharing, people are really rethinking how we move people and things around cities. And, and a lot of sometimes the cursory, you know, there, there may be convenience or there may be better economics, but always somewhere in the discussion is this idea that there are fewer cars or there are lower emissions. And then the, the final category, I think, is, is very, very sort of open-ended. I don't know that there's a pattern specifically, but we see you know, really interesting new takes on how to address a particular social issue in cities. So, so two things that we've seen over the last year, uh, for example, one is concerned with e-waste and education. Um, And those are not two things that normally even appear in the same sentence. Uh, But it turns out that companies that are dumping old computers uh, haven't really given any thought to the idea that they might be reused in low-income areas for people who need exactly the same devices to simply get online and have access to educational resources. Urban Us is organized as a public benefit corporation. Are the startups you're interested in all for-profit or are they organized as public benefits or are some not-for-profit? So we have, I think, the two public benefits and then the rest are for-profit. The, the sort of underlying assumption for us when we look at the companies is less about how they organize and more about the rate at which we think they can scale. And, and specifically scale their, their intended impact, right? Very often, once we use that lens, private investors become important because they are the types of investors, particularly early stage investors, that are interested in companies that scale quickly. That's ultimately how they stand to make a return. And so I, I think we land up finding mostly for-profit companies because they can scale quickly and because they can scale quickly and they provide this investment opportunity to private investors, those two things, I won't go into cause and effect, but I think they're very tightly related. And so most of the companies tend to be for profit. Public benefit is interesting. I mean, there's, there's certified B Corps, uh, but then in our case, we've used a corporate structure in Delaware, which is also common. So we haven't taken the step of being certified, 
but in the way that the company is incorporated, we thought it was important to say that we have two stakeholders, not just shareholders, right? So shareholders are one group of stakeholders, and then the other are sort of defined as people who live in cities that would benefit in some way from the startups that we invest in. I think we'll see more public benefit just because I think it keeps the, the team, you know, beginning with the founders and then their investors and employees, it keeps them focused on what the what their ultimate goal is. Um, and it makes it not just about uh, financial return. What are the signs to you that a company can scale quickly? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I wish I knew all of the signs, but some hints, if they are selling something that you can distribute via consumer retail, as an example. So um, I like to joke with people that the way in which cities get smarter uh, may be through the Apple store. And so anytime you can you can productize something to being able to put, a, put it into the box, I think you have a sort of logical ability to, to um, sell multiple units and sell them globally fairly quickly. Obviously, you know, the same is true in the app store. So uh, anything that could be an application and deployed onto a smartphone is interesting. But I think the, the guiding principle is that in, in the worst case, right, if you have a service, for example, that grows one city at a time, that you could see that within a year to 18 months, the operations, you know, everything from figuring out how you acquire customers and the logistics of actually providing the service in a city is something that could be replicated fairly easily, right? So you could rebuild a team, but city by city expansion is really the hardest one. The sort of you know products in a box, app store types of things. I think people probably understand, but the, the ones that tend to be the hardest for us are sorting through what is a local project that might be replicable, but maybe is just an idea that should be copied versus something that is you know maybe more intensive on sales, marketing, operations, and customer support which might be hard to replicate with more without, you know, some amount of funding um, and sort of detailed understanding of the operation. Sean, I noticed that you refer to the field in which you're working sometimes as urban tech, sometimes as smart cities. And then you provide, again, this more generic description, startups that are solving great urban challenges. Can you sort out the terminology for me? Because, you know, the term smart city got, it seems to me, got captured early by very big tech companies trying to sell very big closed systems to cities. And I'm curious where you believe the tech, uh, the uh, terminology has now evolved and what, what those terms mean. Sure. So I agree completely. I think on the on the smart city front, there is some baggage. I think what, what we've found, so we've only been doing this um, a little over a year, and smart cities tend to come with an assumption about who makes cities smarter. And the who tends to be, uh, again, to your point, a large global technology firm selling to a local government. There's very little mention of any other stakeholders. And so we just don't, that, that's just not what we're finding. What we're finding is that a lot of the most interesting companies are actually selling directly to citizens or consumers, but they're selling to individuals, they're selling to families, they're selling to businesses, they're selling to the people that live in cities, not necessarily the people that uh, run or administer cities. And so urban tech, I think, came out of um, a couple of needs. One is, from our perspective, you know, being able to have a, 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 something that, that um, doesn't have some of the baggage associated with smart cities, but also this idea that there are 
at least in the startup world, and I think in the early stage investment environment, there's a lot of shorthand for what type of thesis, what type of category uh, companies fall into. So for example, um, clean tech had come to mean really interesting opportunities related to the environment, related to alternative energy, renewables, but it tended to mean generation of uh, power. It tended to mean highly capital intensive projects. And then to shift that a little bit, there's a group um, that refers to it as clean web, implying something that is uh, less capital intensive, more dependent on information technology. And so we've tried to play a little bit of this game of saying, well, for the things that we look at, what captures what they are. It sort of spans a bunch of different categories. We see some things that uh, I think people would refer to as civic tech, right? things that involve engagement of citizens in the way that their cities run. We see some things that would be referred to as gov tech, maybe things that are sold directly to local governments to help them provide services better, right? to leverage information technology in a better way. We see things that broadly defined would be called clean tech or even real estate tech, uh, I think Richard Florida is called um, some categories of this. And so there's all these different techs. And so we thought that urban tech would sort of be this encompassing idea of technologies that are being deployed in the service of making cities better. And the better part we, we think of in terms of a, a kind of a Maslow's hierarchy for cities, maybe too simplistic, but it helps us to think about some core things that we tend to, in our sort of daily interactions in cities, ignore until they stop working, right? So things like waste and water and air quality, things that are just givens, again, until you know, we notice they're not being delivered well. So that's at the lowest level. In the middle layer are things that we think about as enablers. Um, we call it assurance. And these are things like you know, energy systems, fi financial systems, so the things that actually enable you to you know, procure and, and fund uh, city systems. Resilience, things that assure that if a system goes down, you can come back online and again provide access to you know, the waste and the water and the energy that we take for granted. And then the highest level is the level that you know, we tend to interact with, but again, I wouldn't call it being close to self-actualization in any way at the top of the pyramid, but things that we, that we need to make city life viable, they say even enjoyable, but things like transport, safety, um, security systems, any, anything that we see that, that could make any parts of, the, of, the, of that hierarchy better, right? So faster, cheaper, more resilient, that definition of better sort of fits within our, our broad definition of urban tech. Is there fertile ground for urban problem solving that you can't get entrepreneurs or investors interested in today? I'm not sure we have enough data on how much we've tried. Uh, maybe that's not entirely fair, but I think, you know, we, again, what we've seen in the last 18 months is that there's more visibility for things like mobility and smart buildings or efficient buildings. I think we're, uh, they're more complex. You know, I won't say those aren't complex problems. So I, I think it's, it's easy for entrepreneurs uh, to get their head around what better would look like. I think they're more complex areas like public health, where I think we could see more um, activity. I think some of it falls under health tech or, or just broader healthcare investments. But I think those are much more uh, from, from a sort of entrepreneur and even the investors that would potentially invest 
into some of these. I think public health is probably the area where we see the least. You've made some predictions, Sean, on your website about urban tech in 2015. One in particular I want to talk to you about is the changing value of location, what you call location versus mobility. Tell me what you're thinking, what you're seeing. You know, location, I think there's some operating assumptions about how people get to locations, right? So so what makes a location valuable is perhaps I live nearby and I can walk there, or there's a convenient route that would let me drive and park when I arrive. When it becomes easier to park, you know, what happens to the assumptions about accessibility of that location? If it gets harder to park, I think we know, uh, you know, we could derive some conclusions. If there are options, you know, that are easy alternatives to walking or driving, you know, such as bike share or other personal mobility devices, so uh, bikes with electric drives, so less effort with more range. I think there's a, there's a different equation around, you know, am I going, given where I live or where I work, where would I go to uh, or what is within range or convenient range? And so I just think the, the sort of calculus around how people think about where they are and where they'd like to go to and how difficult, or, you know, how convenient it is to get there is changing because the options to get around are changing. And so I think that ultimately that has to affect how we think about the value of location. So that's the rough, I don't know if that's clear, but that's sort of the, 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 the best that I understand is, is simply thinking about it from the perspective of when I look at my phone, and I have an, uh, you know, a choice at lunchtime. I also have a choice for how I get to all these lunch options. And I don't necessarily have to think about the problem of, well, the parking lot there is always full. So the, I think there are variations on, on that theme that, yeah, the lunch option is one thing, but, but even deciding you know, where you would live, right? Uh, if, if perhaps there isn't enough parking where you live, could you live with, as a family with one car instead of two? I think those those things are becoming possible. That's a real discussion. And so what does that do to residential real estate? I think it's a great insight and one, as you say in your predictions, that will I expect to receive a lot more attention. Glad you're getting us thinking about it. Let me ask you about the role of government. I'm really interested in in your take on scalability that the not so old but old definition of smart city was really to sell government closed systems. Your focus on scalability is much more around selling things to consumers. Uh, selling things to businesses, to families, as you put it. But I'm also interested in your take on the role of government in what you call urban tech and this, you know, this growing field of urban tech. If you were mayor of Miami, that's where your company's located, how would you, you know, how would you try to set the stage uh, for urban tech so that, as you say, you could invite a lot of people into the game of what better looks like when it comes to living in cities? Yeah, so I, I think you know, inviting people into the game is, is the critical piece. There's already some good work happening around procurement, and, and I think you know, over the next decade, procurement will, will change. Um, but I think that's too often the focus is is what as a as a as a government can I buy that will make things better and so what other roles can can we play uh, if I'm going to role play the the mayor's the mayor uh, in this case 
I think the most important is convening the ability, for example, in, in relationships with real estate developers or real estate operators. You know, are there opportunities to involve them in conversations where you can nudge them uh, to think about, you know, how much parking is really you know, required? I know there's already some uh, work happening around this um, in different cities around, you know, what is sort of a reasonable relationship or different relationship between, you know, parking space and residential development. But I think being able to convene those conversations and convene them not in the context of always of policy, but, but also in terms of what's possible, right? So the rate at which new technology is being developed and tried is such that I think you can have productive meetings simply around show and tell. I won't pretend to know how all the different stakeholders will react to that, but we've seen this on, on sort of a very small scale for ourselves where some of the most interesting conversations that we've had tend to be with real estate developers and operators. They, in a lot of ways, own and control a lot of private space in cities. Um, not that that's, that's certainly uh, and, you know, all of the important space, but it is some important space for us from the perspective of, again, thinking about energy and footprint in cities. So I think an important role for cities is to think about convening citizens and businesses from the perspective of showing them what's possible, not necessarily saying, here's a policy that would encourage you to do more or something. I think eventually we'll see that. I think we've seen pieces of this around, uh, for example, Nest working with utilities in cities like Austin. Now, there are a lot of things that are very different about Austin, not the least of which is you know, owning their own utility, but they're able to bring together you know, citizens into pilot programs to try devices that you know, citizens ultimately buy themselves, which are subsidized, which ultimately impact the city right? uh, directly in terms of energy use, and then more indirectly in terms of their ambitions to reduce their own footprint. So I think there are more opportunities like that. I don't know what to call, it's not quite policy, because I, I think um, a lot of it depends on simply knowing what's possible, right? I think the, the sort of boundaries of what's possible are changing very quickly. And so to have this conversation, I don't think we have the right structure yet. I, I keep calling it a show and tell or a demo. And I find that very often when, when people see a sort of tangible implementation of something, it's much easier for them to think about how it relates to them specifically. And I think cities can play that role, right, to, to, to showcase the best of what's happening, even if it's not something that they directly can purchase or implement themselves. Yeah, I, I, I love that role. I, I don't want to let you get away, Sean, without um, <laughs> giving you a chance to talk about maybe uh, one or two particularly exciting startups. Oh, Give us the play, play favorites. Yeah, play favorites with the kids. You know, so I think within within our portfolio, I'll I'll pick you know in, in sort of the two biggest growing areas. Um, I'll just pick two two examples. You know, the one is a company called uh, One Wheel, and it's interesting for for a few different reasons. It's so to describe it uh, quickly, it's a single wheel skateboard. If you imagine a Segway, uh, but riding it sideways with nothing to hold on to. Um, so it should sound it should sound a little bit terrifying. Um, it's actually very good fun. Uh, it feels like snowboarding uh, on asphalt, uh, which is which is an interesting sensation. The reason that it's interesting is that it looks like a toy, right? In its current incarnation, this is not a mobility solution. I think a lot of things that turn out to be really impactful look this way, right? I think when when people look back at something like Uber, 
it wasn't going to be a disruptive urban mobility solution. It was sort of a high-end way to go to nightclubs, right? I don't want to trivialize it because I, I think this is an important thing. A lot of the things that we see that may turn out to be the most impactful really do look like toys or niche applications. So one wheel sort of fits that description. You know, what is it, what percent chance do I give it of having sort of broad adoption globally as a you know, few hundred dollar electric device that will take you 10 miles on a 20 minute charge? Maybe 5%, you know, the, the chances of it actually getting, you know, all the things happening that need to happen to get it to that point 10 years in the future, there are too many things that need to go right you know, the odds are low. In the meantime, it's something that is going to be a niche product that, that's fun. But I'm excited about the possibility of what happens when I have a device that has an electric motor, very few moving parts, the guts of a telephone, uh, and recharges very quickly and effectively changes your sort of radius of where you can get to, and then you can sort of pick it up and get into public transit or pick it up and take it inside with you. That's intriguing. And if that can be you know, sort of a couple of hundred dollars, so about the price of a phone, you know, possibilities are very interesting. And so that's, that's one wheel in the mobility space. And then in the, in the built environment space, the company that we work with that I think is furthest along in terms of growth and fundraising and scale uh, is a company called Skycatch. And Skycatch makes aerial robots. I mean, they make completely autonomous drones. What's most interesting, actually, is not the fact that they make flying robots. It's what those robots do in terms of collecting images and collecting data when they're flying around. So as an example, they are being used in Carl Gables, I believe, on the construction of a, I think it's a golf course, right? And so they fly over the golf course, um, and they provide ongoing data about um, construction, right? They can feed that back to engineers, architects, uh, landscapers, whoever's involved in the project, they are being used for infrastructure monitoring, right? So they can be, they are flown over solar arrays or flown close to wind turbine blades. But what happens, uh, you know, when, when you sort of step back and you get over the flying and the imaging and, you know, concerns about privacy is these are things that today, you know, people get in a truck probably uh, or pickup drive somewhere, look at something, uh, take a picture, maybe make some notes, drive back to somewhere else. Um, and then, you know, at some point, you know, th- this information will find its way online and be shared in any number of different collaborative environments from email to, you know, whatever proprietary software. When you remove that need uh, and you essentially automate this process of going into the world and inspecting and capturing images, there's a very profound change in the time it takes to do projects. Uh, there's, a, there's a profound change in how easy it is to inspect existing infrastructure. And so, you know, the, the, the reason I'm excited about this is that we can start to see, you know, sort of large chunks of time be removed from development projects. Uh, we can see chunks of time uh, and cost removed from understanding the condition of existing infrastructure and then being able to prioritize how we allocate resource against it. And that's really interesting. They, they announced actually a few days ago that, um, you know, they're going to start to go from capturing data that people use to make decisions to actually capturing data that talks in real time to construction machinery. <laughs> um, so, you know, if I try and think 10 years out, I'm having a hard time imagining something that is not uh, currently science fiction 
but the implications in terms of the built environment, in terms of our ability to understand what we what we have, understand um, the condition, how it operates, and what we can do is is very interesting. Actually, fascinating. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk here in the new year. Um, thanks for talking with me today on Night Cities. Thanks, Carol. Sean Abramson is co-founder of Urban Us. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when our new conversations are posted by signing up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.